Well, good morning. It is great to have you guys here. If this is your first time to our Southwood campus, we are thrilled that you guys are visiting us. Uh, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and we are just ecstatic to have you guys. Uh, it has been an exciting week, uh, unlike most weeks where we had no game day uh, this uh, past yesterday. And yet uh, you would have had to had your head buried in the sand in many ways to have missed uh, really the news that has dominated national headlines this week of A&M's move, hopefully, to the SEC this week. And so whether you're a sports fan or not, it has been really hard to miss that. Uh, the story's kind of unfolded the last couple months, really, but particularly the last week and a half when on September 2nd, uh, Big 12 and all of its institutions provided A&M a written response of our uh, ability to go ahead and leave and depart. And so this past Wednesday, A&M was poised and ready uh, to have a press conference announcing our arrival into the SEC and a newfound marriage. Uh, well, as this week has unfolded, as you guys, some of you all know, uh, Baylor, right on the heels of that press conference, thank you very much, uh, hijacked the entire process, all right? And really, basically what has unfolded, really, in many ways, I love a good love triangle. And this really, in my ways, uh, reminds me of a good, nice junior high love romance triangle, all right? So you have, in a sense, A&M playing the part of the, the boyfriend who's looking to move on from a past relationship to a new one, right? Uh, you have Baylor. God bless them, uh, playing the soul of the crazy stalker ex-girlfriend, right? Um, who, uh, who at first seemed civil about you moving on, but then proceeded to go behind your back to everyone in school to undermine your new relationship, right? Um, and so now A&M, due to Baylor and uh, all that uh, she is a ringleader of, has now landed us in a spot of conference alignment limbo, all right? Uh, we've confessed our desire to depart from the Big 12. We don't want a friendship with that ex-girlfriend anymore, right? Uh, but we want a newfound romance that we can't enter into. And so we are, in a sense, in limbo, all right? Uh, Lofton said this week that, in a sense, we are being held hostage. And I think someone should let Baylor know that extortion is not really a very friendly thing, nor is it becoming of a Baptist college, right? Uh, <laughs> And so uh, it's not that we uh, think that Baylor is the devil. It's not that we think Baylor is going to hell, all right? But I think what's unfolded this week really provides us a great parallel for really uh, the situation we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Gospel of Luke. We're going to be continuing on in our series this morning on heaven and hell. And this morning, we're going to answer the question, the primary question, where does Baylor go when the Big 12 dies? <laughs> all right, no, we're not doing that, right? Um, we're going to be answering the question, where do people go when they die, all right? And really what we're going to see this morning is that uh, at death, you and I are going to enter into a limbo state that is much like what A&M has entered into this morning. And what we're going to see particularly this morning from Luke chapter 16 is that death is going to lead to a reversal in our lives that is insane, incomplete, and irreversible. What we're going to see from Luke chapter 16, and I think a really difficult passage this morning, so if you need some coffee, grab it when I pray, uh, is that we're going to see that death is going to lead to a reversal that is insane that is incomplete, and that is irreversible. Look up, if you will, Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in the latter half of this passage, uh, beginning and picking up in verse 19. We're going to be in verses 19 to 31. I'm going to start us off in verses 19 to 26 this morning. Jesus says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angel to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. 
And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here from, from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. We pray with me. Father, this morning we open to Luke chapter 16 and it's an incredibly difficult passage. Um, Father, I pray that as we open it, as you uh, walk us through, Lord, I pray that you would comfort us. I pray that you would speak to us. Um, Father, I, uh, I think of uh, even a story of a rich man and a poor man and those that were displaced and struggling in this life, Lord. And I think of all those who've lost homes uh, throughout fires throughout much of Texas in the past week and a half, Father. We pray for comfort for them. Pray for rain. Pray that you would uh, show yourself in real ways to them as they struggle to find a home, as they struggle to find comfort, as so much of their lives have, have changed in an instant with a fire. And Father, Lord, as we look at another fire to come and another day that is even more tragic, Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, insight, that you give us understanding. I pray that you give us hearts uh, that are softened to you, to be responsive to you. I pray that you allow us to, to ask and to wrestle with hard stuff this morning. I pray that your spirit would give me grace as I teach and that you would allow my teaching to be a faithful uh, direction of what you have and what you would want to communicate this morning. I pray that you'd move me out of the way and that you'd use this time in my life and in all of our lives, uh, however you see fit this morning, Lord. Father, we ask that you'd move in power, uh, that you'd move in strength, that you'd move to bring light into darkness, to bring hope where there's despair. pray that you'd move in, in huge ways in our lives and even ways beyond what we expect this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Luke chapter 16 is going to show us in a sense that a death is going to occur, and with death comes a reversal that is going to be insane. As the story opens up, Jesus is going to give us a rich man, he's going to give us a poor man, and we're going to get one of the most elaborate and drastic before and afters that you're ever going to see, all right? And the contrasts that are, in a sense, interwoven throughout the story are meant to be incredibly gripping, they're meant to be incredibly drastic. And so, notice in a sense the reversal that's going to happen between the rich man and the poor man, it's going to be in a sense a reversal of their situational position. Notice again, verse 19, notice the way that this rich man is described. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And there was a poor man named Lazarus who was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the, t- the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. There's a contrast. There's an overturning of man's situational positions before and after death. And the contrast is meant to be absolutely stunning. It's meant to be absolutely gripping for you. And I notice that the rich man is not even named in the passage. And yet any rich man in this day and time is always going to be known and always going to be named. And so the fact that he goes from named to nameless is not coincidence. Notice also that he's going to be from going from splendor and comfort to utter agony. Notice even the great contrast, even at the gate, at his own gate, you have a poor man who's looking for just crumbs from his table. And you have a man who is completely oblivious to the despair and the pain that is all around him. In fact, he doesn't even move. The only comfort that is given to this poor man is the very tongue of a dog who comes to lick his wounds. This man is rich. This man is known. This man is in splendor and comfort. And yet after death, what we notice is a great overturning of those things. A man who is quite oblivious to pain and torment is now quite, quite aware of it, right? He's in Hades and he's in absolute torment. He's crying out to be comforted. And yet he was the one who had provided no comfort to the pain that was all around him. He goes from named to nameless. In fact, as we go and look at this poor man, even the contrast about him are even more stunning. He's going to go from uh, suffering and agony to comfort uh, in Abraham's bosom. Even more so, he's going to have been the one who would surely would have been overlooked, who would have been nameless. And yet here in our story, in this before and after glimpse, we see that he's named. His name is Lazarus. 
So here we have the rich man who's nameless and the poor man who is named. A great contrast for what would have been in our day and time. In fact, what I think is really significant is he's at a gate where no one will carry him. And yet what's going to come is he's going to be carried later on by angels to a new gate, a heavenly gate. The contrasts are dripping all over this passage of the great overturning that occurs from uh, this rich man's life to what's going to occur before and after death. Same thing for the poor man. The, the contrasts are all over the place, and they're meant to teach you and I, in a sense, that present prosperity has nothing to do with eternal destiny. The present prosperity has nothing to do with eternal destiny because this man's riches are not going to save him. This man's splendor, this man's glory is but fading because a day is going to come and a destiny, destiny is going to come that his prosperity will not buy him out of. He's in trouble. In fact, as we kind of walk through, what's really insane about it is not just the way that man's situational position is overturned before and after death, but even more, what's really even more insane about this is the way death overturns not just man's situational position, but actually God's creational purposes. Death doesn't just overturn man's situational position that is timely. Death is going to overturn God's creational purposes that are timeless. Notice what death does. Notice, in fact, I'm taking you back all the way to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to see that death is absolutely unnatural. What is death? First, it's unnatural. Why do we say that? I'm taking you guys back to Genesis chapter 2, and here is the creation of man from death or from unexistence to life. He says, Genesis 2, Then the Lord God formed man from dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. What does it mean that you and I are alive? What it means is that God has taken that which is material and he's taken that which is immaterial and he's brought them together to form a created human being. Was Adam alive when God had formed him out of the dust? No. The fact that you and I exist is not just that you and I are bodily and material. What makes you and I human is that you and I are bodily and material, but we're also immaterial. Notice God takes the material and he breathes into man life and man becomes a living being. And so what death is, is an overturning of that very thing. And so notice, after the fall, when man sins, God promises him, you will surely die if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Genesis 3, here comes the curse. Cursed is the ground, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Till you return to the ground, and to the dust you shall return. What is death? Death is not just a reversal of man's situational positions, but it is an overturning of God's creational purposes. Death is absolutely unnatural. God never intended death for his creation, and so sin's entrance and therefore death's result is never at all what God intended. Death is the most unnatural thing to ever come to his creation because it is an undoing of his creation. When man was brought forth from the ground, death will take man back to the ground. This is not at all what God intended. In fact, it's not just that death is unnatural. Ultimately, death is all about separation conceptually. What does it mean that you and I die? In fact, we get, uh, he tells Adam and Eve, you will die if you eat from the tree, and they die in two different ways, even in Genesis. Two different ways that we see even to this day. There is a physical death that occurs. Death is partly physical. And then when it is physical death, what we're talking about is a separation that occurs to you and I physically. All right? What death is, is a ripping apart of that which is immaterial about us from that which is material. Death, when we go into the ground, what's occurring is that our soul, our spirit, is ripped from our physical being. All right, what God intended was the material and the immaterial to be together. And so what death is, is a ripping physically apart of the physical, the material, and the immaterial. All right? And so what death is physically is all about separation. It's a ripping apart of what God intended to be together physically, the soul with the body. All right? What death means, spiritually speaking, is a ripping apart of relationship. And so even back to Genesis 3, if you know the story, Adam and Eve eat of the apple, and then what do they do next? They hide out. 
So God comes strolling through the garden, and what does he say? Adam and Eve, where are you? It's not a big, giant, divine game of hide-and-go-seek, right? God knows where they are. But why are they hiding out? Because the first time in their life, they're ashamed, and there's a separation between God and man, and so they're hiding out. In fact, it's not just that they're hiding out from God. They're actually hiding out from one another as well. And so if you know the story, Adam and Eve put on fig leaves to cover themselves because they're ashamed of their nakedness. And so a separation has occurred not just between God and man, but even between man and woman. In fact, we find even from Genesis, even between man and creation itself, a separation has wrought every part of what God intended and what he created. Not just of the creation itself, but even of the relationships themselves. And so death is all about separation of what God originally intended to be together of the body with the soul, and of relationships of humanity with God, of humanity with one another, and even humanity with creation. And so what death has done is has ripped all of those things apart. It's brought tension, it's brought crisis to all of those different relationships and arenas. And so what death is, is unnatural, it's about separation, and ultimately it's about fear. Death brings about fear in all of us. It's interesting, even a few weeks ago, we were talking to a nurse who was telling us, you can see what men and women believe about death when they're on their deathbed. You can see with absolute clarity what they believe about God, what they believe about the afterlife by the way that they exist on their deathbed when they know what's coming. For some, it's absolute fear and panic. Um, the story was told in France of Henry XIV, who wouldn't even let the word death be mentioned in his presence because he was so scared. He was so scared of what would happen even if the word was mentioned. Uh, one of my favorite comics, Jerry Seinfeld, has a quote. He talks about statistics to show that men have two great, their men and women have two great fears in life. One is public speaking. Number two is death. So if you're at a eulogy or someone's uh, died, people would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy, right? Because uh, fear is all around those two things, right? So again, you and I just don't really know what to do with death, all right? Death is always that thing that's out there that we know is a certainty, but we're kind of partly unsure about it. We're partly fearful of it. And I think there's all kinds of fear about death because ultimately death, for many of us, we don't realize that it does. Death does not have the final word. <laughs> that what occurs at death is a reversal of all that God intended from creation, and it is also a reversal of all of what is man's situational positions. But death is absolutely incomplete. The reversal that death leads to is one that is not just insane, contrary to what God intended, but it is one that is absolutely incomplete. The reversal that occurs at death is not the final word on what's going to happen with the rest of human history. A reversal occurs, but it is one that is incomplete. What do I mean by that? Look with me back to the story. Uh, back to, uh, we're going to look at verse uh, 23. Notice the, the discussion. In Hades, uh, he lifted up his eyes, the rich man did, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in, in agony in this flame. Notice, in a sense, I'm going to give you guys a few questions that we're going to walk through to kind of highlight this, but I want you guys to notice, first, where did these two people go? Right? At death, where did the rich man and where did Lazarus go? In particular, I want to ask, where did they go then? All right? um, particularly, what you notice is that the rich man goes to a place called Hades, and so the question we've got to ask is, what is Hades? Is Hades hell? In a series that we continue to talk about heaven and hell. And the second thing you'll notice is that the poor man goes to a place called Abraham's bosom. So is Abraham's bosom heaven? If it is, I'm quite confused and a little bit uh, uncertain, right? <laughs> what in the world is Abraham's bosom and why are we going there? Okay. Um, ultimately, as you kind of walk through the scriptures, even if you think back to the Gospels, which was the disciple that was always on Jesus' bosom? It was John, right? Jesus and John had a really close presence and close relationship. And so often when we see someone leaning on one's bosom, what it denotes is that not just the person is in that person's presence, John was in Jesus' presence, but John also had in his presence a very close relationship. 
And I think what Jesus is trying to show to you and I for this uh, poor man is he dies and he goes into Abraham's bosom. Ultimately, he is in the presence of Abraham. To be in one's bosom is to be in their presence. And so what you see, I think, prior to the cross here, and we don't really talk about this that much, is that prior to the cross of Jesus Christ, prior to the crucifixion, that when men and women died, uh, they went to one of two places. One was called Hades, one was called Abraham's bosom. And neither of these places are heaven and hell. All right, Abraham's bosom is not heaven. Hades is not hell. All right, uh, I'll show you guys in a sense with regard to Hades. Here's what the book of Revelation says about Hades. Chapter 20, verses 11 to 13. Then I saw a great white throne, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged according to their deeds. Notice that Hades, in a sense, is a holding place for those that have not trusted in Jesus Christ as they await judgment. Abraham's bosom and Hades themselves were both holding places in a sense in which men and women who had died were, were going to and waiting for a future change to come. All right? and so the reversal that death led to was incomplete. Uh, for for uh, the rich man and the poor man, they were both going to a place that was temporary that was not going to be where they were going to be for all of eternity. All right? So Hades, in the end, is going to give up the dead and that will eventually be judged of the great white throne. And verse 14 in Revelations will speak of then Hades giving up the dead that are then judged and thrown into the lake of fire that is hell. So Hades is not hell. Abraham's bosom is not heaven, all right? In fact, what we find is that this is where these two people went. The question is, where do we go now, all right? Uh, the rich man and the poor man went to two places, Abraham's bosom and, and Hades. But the question is, where do we go today now? Uh, Christ, if you guys remember this discussion in back to Luke chapter 23, uh, Christ is being crucified on the cross. He's got a criminal on his left and his right, and one of the criminals is discussing with him and basically makes a decision and trusts Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, sees the Son of God being crucified and says, I want to be with you in your kingdom. Notice Jesus' response. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Uh, At the cross, a dramatic change occurs as to where people go when they die. All right. For those that have trusted in Jesus Christ, they no longer go to Abraham's bosom, but they go to a place that Jesus calls paradise, all right? which is, notice, not in the presence necessarily of just Abraham, but now in the presence of Jesus himself. The Old Testament saints were waiting for the cross to occur so that payment would be made for sin so that the Old Testament saints could go into the presence of God. But notice Hades itself, though, is a place where Old Testament people have gone, and even those today that trust in, or that die having not trusted in Jesus Christ, they go to a place called Hades where they're awaiting judgment until a future day. So those that in the Old Testament went to Hades are still waiting as long as those that die today. And the question is, in these two places, what is going on? All right? Uh, we don't talk about these places a lot, so what's happening there if they're not heaven and hell? What are they? What's going on? Well, simply put, you notice from the scripture and from the passage that in, in, uh, in paradise or in Abraham's bosom is a place of comfort, and Hades is a place of torment and agony, all right? And so you get these clear contrasts between these two places. But what I really want to draw your attention to is who are we in those places, all right? Uh, some will argue that when you and I die, our souls are annihilated or we, in a sense, go into soul sleep, all right? We don't, we, we don't exist anymore is what some would argue. I think it's pretty hard to argue for annihilation if you're going to hold the scriptures to be true because Jesus is going to show a pretty conscious reality after death. Notice he says that these two, one of them lifts up their eyes. They're having a discussion. They're pretty aware of what's going on around them. I think as you look at Luke chapter 16 and you look through the rest of the scriptures, it's pretty hard to argue that upon death, you and I are just obliterated, obliterated from existence. In fact, what creation and life was all about was, again, the wedding of the body with the soul that was eternal. So when God breathed life, when you and I die physically, it's not a death to our entire existence. All right? And what we're going to look at here in a little while is that what resurrection is, what we're eventually hoping for to come, is a reunion of a glorified body with our immaterial soul. 
you and I were created material and immaterial. Death rips those apart, and what resurrection does is bring those back together. And so in these places, as we're awaiting resurrection and a day to come, who, do, who are we in these places? There's a couple options. I don't think that we uh, don't exist. I think we do all exist, all right? But who are we? What's going on in this limbo period post-death prior to the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ? Who are we? What's going on? One of two options. Either we are spirit bodies, all right? That our souls are existing and we are now, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, in the presence of Christ, but we're waiting on our resurrection. And so some of this language is figurative for what is our experience, all right? Or we have been given some kind of transitional body that is awaiting for our uh, glorified, resurrected body, all right? And so there's some discussion, there's some confusion as to exactly what is going on bodily. But the reason why death's reversal is incomplete, because what occurs at death is a ripping away of the material from the immaterial. It is a ripping away of the physical body from the spirit. And yet what we're waiting for to come is a reunion of that body resurrected and glorified with our spirit. You and I are not going to die and then float away into the heavens for all of eternity, all right? Uh, Playing harps that we can't touch because we have no bodies, all right? Uh, That makes no sense, all right? In fact, what God created, the body is good. The body is not something we were released from, like an earth suit. And so when people talk at a funeral, it's like this, this great release from the physical body. And so now all is good as we just float as a spirit for the rest of eternity. That is not at all what is the full reality of the Christian hope. The full reality of the Christian hope is not just that Jesus Christ will forgive us of our sins, but that he will remake and recreate all the things that he deemed to be good and resurrect and restore all those things, including the body. The body is not just some scab you flake off when you die. All right, The body is a part of his creation from the very beginning, a part that he will redeem, resurrect, and restore and reunite with our spirits. What we're going to look at next week is really all about resurrection, so we'll talk a lot more about that. But that is why death's reversal is incomplete. What death does in ripping apart the material from the immaterial is not all that God intended. In fact, that's why it's incomplete, because we're waiting on something more that God is going to do. So we'll talk even more about that next week. But ultimately, death leads to a reversal that is insane and incomplete, because what occurs is not all that is going to occur. What death does is not the final word, because a final word is coming when the body will be resurrected, reunited, and death will be overcome. That's ultimately what we're hoping for. And so it's not just that death's reversal is incomplete, but the last thing we're going to see is that it is also irreversible. Death's reversal is irreversible. Death leads to a reversal that is irreversible. Uh, The thing you're going to see over and over through this passage is he's going to talk about the fact that what occurs after death is something that we cannot change. In fact, the way we could put it and say is that our eternal destinies are decided prior to death, pre-death. Notice back with me, if you will, verse 26. And besides all of this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Notice that Jesus is saying in the parable that that the destinies that are determined post-death cannot be changed. That that post-death, men and women will arrive either in Hades or they'll arrive in paradise paradise today and that ultimately where they arrive, they cannot change, they cannot cross paths because the destiny that you and I have is determined prior to death and so post-death, it cannot be changed. You and I in this life have one shot at determining our eternal destinies. Therefore, we hold life with a sense of fear and a sense of trepidation. Uh, For me, I've done probably about 12 weddings now in my life, and with every wedding that I do, there's a sense for me of utter fear, all right? Um, Because I realize I got one shot at a wedding, all right? If I botch it and mess it up as the officiator of a wedding, uh, that wedding is just 
in a sense now memorable. All right. So uh, even the first wedding I did, uh, I even at the top of the wedding kind of explained to people that this is my first wedding. I'm kind of a rookie here, uh, but this is awesome. Uh, There's a couple that I knew really well, and the wedding went really well. I was kind of walking through, got to the end where I was doing the vows. I was almost home free. And I made a mistake in the vows such that I had the husband, the groom, promising to be the wife. Um, and I said it at first. And I was like, something seems off. And then he says it right back to me, repeats my mistake. And I was like, oh, no. And then the whole audience understood and grabbed it that I had just had him promising to be the wife. And the whole crowd just lost it. All right. And it literally took me two minutes to get the wedding back together. All right. So we could finish this thing. But I just remember the lights got really hot. I just started sweating. You know, I was like, and thankfully it was some dear friends that uh, were gracious. But, you know, again, in the aftermath of it, they're like, well, at least our wedding is now memorable. Right. Um, you know, weddings, you get one shot at. All right. A sermon, I can botch it. But you guys hopefully come back the next week and we can fix it. Right. Okay. Uh, but weddings, you got one shot at this thing. Uh, not to make a cheesy parallel, but the reality is the same of our eternal destinies. You have one shot to determine eternal destinies, and it is prior to death. And yet that concept that I think you cannot argue from in Luke chapter 16 is a concept that is greatly debated today. Uh, people greatly debate the reality of a reversal that is irreversal. Um, in fact, many will, will argue today that eternal destinies can be determined post-death. A few examples, Catholic purgatory. Catholics will argue that post-death you go to a place that you can potentially pay penance for your sins so that you can then get into heaven. So you could potentially reverse your eternal destiny in a post-death purgatory. Uh, many, uh, like Rob Bell and other universalists, will argue uh, not just that you can reverse your destiny after death, but some of them will argue that all men and women will come to know Jesus Christ. All will be in heaven, that hell will not exist because none will be in hell. In fact, the way, they, the way that all of them get there, though, is they argue for a conversion that occurs after death. That the reversal that occurs after death, they will argue, is not irreversible, that you can change your destiny after death. And here's why. Here's how Bell says and others like him. In fact, if you've read his book, Love Wins, that was really popular a little bit last spring, uh, and I know a lot of people are writing now in response to his book, but here's what he argues. There will be endless opportunities and an endless amount of time for people to say yes to God. Given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt away every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. Bell is going to argue that there is no hell because there doesn't need to be a hell because all will eventually trust in Jesus Christ and be in heaven with Jesus. All right, and the way that he's going to get there is that there's going to be endless opportunities even after death for you and I to trust Jesus Christ. I don't understand how Bell gets that from a passage like Luke 16. There's a chasm that is fixed that you and I cannot cross because our destinies are determined prior to death. I understand the why Bell is doing it and I understand why others like him are doing it. Notice actually you're going to see the same reason that Bell has actually in our story. Look with me, if you will, verse 27. Notice the response that the, that the rich man has in light of this fixed chasm that cannot be separated. He says in verse 27, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that they may warn them so that uh, they will not come to this place of torment. The rich man says to Abraham, Hey, Abraham, uh, since this chasm is fixed and none can cross it, will you please send Lazarus to my father's house? I have five brothers and I don't want them to come here. All right. The, the rich man's motivation was he wanted to save people from hell. He wanted to save them from torment. I think Bell and those like him are just the same. Their motivations are right on. They want to save people from hell. I also think they want to protect God from a PR nightmare. All right. 
Uh, part of what uh, Bell and others like him are doing are, is not just that their motivations are to assure uh, uh, that all would arrive into heaven and enjoy the presence of God for all of eternity, but I also think they want to ensure that God is not raked over the coals culturally and rebuked and criticized and have what is, in a sense, a big public relations nightmare. Luke chapter 16 is not great for a PR release statement, all right? Luke 16, and the reality of, any, of, any, of a place in which there will be agony and torment and a place in which there will be comfort that you cannot change post-death, is not a message that makes for a great Hallmark card of comfort. Right? It's not a, a message, frankly, that I want to teach. <laughs> as, as a pastor, this is not a fun message. It is not a, even as we talk this fall about heaven and hell, and we talk about hell even more in a few more weeks, it's not a message that's fun to talk about. Uh, if I could rewrite the story, if I could tell a different story, if I could interpret this differently, I sure would like to. But I don't think I have that freedom. All right? and, I, and I think really what Bell does is he's going to take some freedoms and some licenses he doesn't have because he wants to get God off the hook. Notice what he says. Uh, this is a longer quote, but you're going to get a sense of his motivation. What's Bell's problem? Uh, telling a story in which billions of people spend forever somewhere in the universe trapped in a black hole of endless torment and misery with no way out isn't a very good story. Telling a story about a God who inflicts unrelenting punishment on people because they didn't do or say or believe the correct things in a brief window of time called life isn't a very good story. In contrast, everybody enjoying God's good world together with no disgrace or shame, justice being served and all the wrongs being made right is a better story. It is bigger, more loving, more expansive, more extraordinary, beautiful, and inspiring than any other story about the ultimate course history takes. What do you do with that? Uh, Bell is going to take a look at, in a sense, a passage like Luke 16, and a passage that has been the, the historical Christian understanding of heaven and hell, and he's going to say it's not a good story. It doesn't sell well. It doesn't market well. It makes God look pretty, pretty awful. <laughs> Uh, and so let me get God off the hook, and let me retell a different story that's going to make God look much better. The problem is I think Bell and many like him are going to go to a place where he's going to disregard the sufficiency of Scripture, which is actually exactly where the rich man goes next. Notice, notice what happens. It's going to be the sufficiency of Scripture that's going to be removed. Notice what the rich man does. So he says, hey, Abraham, can you send some people to share with my brothers about this place called Hades? And Abraham says in verse 29, Uh, They have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. God has already spoken and revealed. Let your brothers listen to the revealed word of God. But for the rich man, that's not enough. Verse 30. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, Abraham's response. But Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. If someone will not believe the written word of God, even a miracle will not change their viewpoints. And I think what Bell does and what many do like him is that they're going to dismiss the sufficiency of Scripture and send it out the door. In fact, I think we do this historically. In fact, if you've been uh, with us in our church history elective that started this morning, one of the reasons why I love this church history elective is that it does that for us. It shows us, culturally speaking, how the church has responded uh, century after century to the the different uh, emphasis of culture, the different values of culture. And what you see over time is, in a sense, how the church has responded with relevance but also sometimes how the church has responded in an effort for relevance and, and forsaken the very crux of truth. Ultimately, I think in, in the desire for relevance and the desire to make an emotional connection, Bell and many like him are going to dismiss the sufficiency of Scripture, and they're going to frankly write a different story. They're going to write a story that, that differs from the actual accounts of the Bible and the core doctrines of our faith. In fact, that's why I'd love to also encourage you guys, if some of this is really interesting to you guys, our essential study is a great spot to really nail some of this down. 
in our essential study, we're going to talk about who God is, who Christ is, uh, what the Bible is, how you and I live. And if some of these questions really are the core of what you're wrestling with, let me encourage you to sign up for essentials. All of our small groups just kicked off last week, but really this week is the first night that they're in their lessons. They're actually in groups uh, this week, and so it's not too late to jump in. But in an essential study, what we're going to do is wrestle with those big questions. I think Bell and those like him are not just rewriting a new story, but they're actually refashioning God himself. And ultimately what Bell and those like him, and for many of us, what we don't like, and what doesn't do well for God's image and his PR and his marketing is a God who is a judge and a God who is holy. And so what we do often in our culture and what Bell has done and he's led, I think, countless towards it is a refashioning and a re-envisioning of who God is. It's not a God who's going to absolutely one day judge. It's not a God who's wrathful and holy, but it's a God whose love is greater than all of those qualities and eventually will win all because he's not really that upset with sin. He's not really that upset and that called off by the depravity of our pride and our arrogance, that which is contrary to who God is. He's not that upset. He loves you even better and he'll win you over eventually. Ultimately, what Bell and some of us do at times is that we begin to refashion a view and a picture of God, not as he truly is. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's what we call idolatry. It's a refashioning and a repicturing of a God who is more PR marketable and is more liked and is easier to swallow than a God just as he is. You look through the Old Testament, you see stories of a God who is wrathful, who is judgeful, uh, and who is holy. He's set apart, and he, and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And yet what we find in the New Testament is despite his holiness, he's provided in his son, Jesus Christ, a payment for his sins so that he can remain holy, and yet he can forgive because in Jesus we get a satisfaction of his wrath as his wrath is poured out on Jesus on the cross. And so what you see is not just a move away from the sufficiency of Scripture. Typically, what you often see is a, re- a sense of the fact that now Jesus' death is no longer necessary. How do men and women get there? They begin to refashion God. And when you begin to refashion God, you also begin to refashion man. And when you begin to refashion who man is and who God is, all of a sudden you don't need a Jesus who has to come and who has to die. Because man is not that bad, God is not that angry, and Jesus doesn't have to die that horribly. And yet what is reality as we look through our Scriptures is God is that holy. Man is that sinful. We are that opposed to who God is. And therefore, because we have offended him so greatly, he had to send his own son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and to receive in himself the entire wrath of God. The death of Jesus was absolutely necessary to satisfy the wrath of God so that you and I could be reconciled and that death could be overturned. Apart from the death of Christ, we sang it this morning, that he trampled over death by death. How did Jesus overcome and provide hope and resurrection for you and I? It was in his death. It was his death in which he trampled over death and he disarmed it as he resurrected. Apart from the death of Christ, you and I have no hope. We have no encouragement. We have no strength and we have no peace because it is in his death that we see that he's defeated sin. He's defeated the devil. He's defeated death and he will one day reign and conquer. And yet I think for many of us, as we look at a a picture of a Jesus on a cross, a Jesus who had to die, it's an image again, if you were there at that moment at the foot of Calvary, that you would not have at at all thought this was a good story. In fact, if you were there on that day in which Jesus Christ was put up on a cross and crucified, all those that were around, family and disciples, they all thought it was a pretty bad story. Which is why they all embarrassed and they all ran for cover and they all were hiding out for the next few days that followed. None of them thought it was a good story. Bell doesn't think this is a good story. And yet the reality is what you and I see in the aftermath of resurrection, the aftermath of what Jesus does is that is a beautiful story of a God who comes to redeem humanity from their sin and provides them their only way of escape out. Our entire eternal destinies hang on what we do with the Son, Jesus Christ. 
Story is told of another rich family one time who had a son who was born to them. And in that birth, uh, the mother uh, died due to complications in the pregnancy, and the son was born with cerebral palsy and a disfigured face. Some of you guys have heard the story before, but uh, in, in the years that would follow, eventually the son would die from cerebral, cerebral palsy. Um, <clears throat> and the months that would follow after that, the father would die as well. And with no living heirs to the family and to the state of this rich family, an auction occurred uh, for the entire estate. And in that auction, the first thing uh, by the father's wishes and by his will that he wanted sold off was a portrait of his son, the son that he loved, the son that was his only visual reminder throughout his life of his deceased wife. So as the uh, portrait of his disfigured son was put up, there was a gasp amongst the audience as they were all a bit embarrassed and it was quite awkward. Uh, And then the bidding began. And the auctioneer asked for $1,000 for the portrait and no one responded. The silence was deafening. The silence was awkward. And then it continued down, $750, nobody. $500, nobody. And then at $250, someone voiced up and put an offer in for the painting. And from the back of the room came forth and down through the crowd as everyone was looking to see who wanted to buy this portrait of this deceased son was an elderly woman who had been the caretaker for this son who had, throughout his life of cerebral palsy who had cared for him and loved him. And as the painting was pulled off of the wall, they had noticed a note that said, please open. And they opened the note and then they discovered that a hidden stipulation of his will of this uh, father was that whoever purchased the portrait of the son who cared enough for the son would get the entirety of the estate. And so at that moment, the auctioneer hit the gavel and the auction was over. And that this woman got the entirety of the state because she loved the son. It's a great picture. It's a great portrait, really, of what the God the Father has done for those of us who have looked at the son, Jesus Christ, crucified on a cross and said, I love him. I want him and I want to have a relationship with him. Because for those that have done that, the Father says, then here's my entire estate. Here's my entire inheritance. Ultimately, our entire destinies hang on what we do with Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, the strongest I can say to you is consider him. (laughs) Apart from him and apart from his death, you and I have no life. You and I have then a great fear of death, of the great unknown that will be a great reversal that is insane and yet incomplete and irreversible. And what you and I have an opportunity in Jesus Christ is we have an opportunity to find forgiveness of sins and eternal life and one who offers to you and I an absolutely free gift. He paid it all so that we don't have to pay anything. He paid it all and he stood where we had to stand so that he could experience a death that we didn't have to. And though you and I will experience a physical death to come, you and I don't have to experience a spiritual death to come for all of eternity in which we will eventually be separated from God himself for all of eternity, which is the agony and the torment that awaits. But for those that have trusted in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, uh, you and I have a peace, we have a hope to come because we are with Jesus. <laughs> no matter what comes of human history, we will be with Jesus and so we can have confidence and we can have peace. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ and you have questions, can I plead with you? Come talk to me. (laughs) Uh, Consider this week the death that Jesus Christ paid. Today can be the day that you trust Jesus Christ maybe for the first time in your life and you can walk out of here with a peace that maybe you've never had before. And the peace that he offers is not just of what is to come in eternity, but is a peace that exists in, in the present today right now. He doesn't come just to give eternal life. He comes to give abundant life in the present. And that is the peace and the joy that we have if we know Jesus Christ. If you do know Jesus Christ this morning, let me challenge you, along with Bell and those like him, uh, do you consider the sufficiency, or do you consider Scripture to be sufficient? Uh, what do you do in those moments that you want to change the depiction of God and you want to change the story of God? Let me plead with you not to. Let me plead with you not to take a freedoms away from the sufficiency of Scripture because what God has revealed is what we need to know. <laughs> and as we culturally try to provide relevance to a world that's watching and listening, we so often can gut the very message that we proclaim. 
And we can be a church that is relevant but is absolutely hollow because that which is transforming is truth. And when we can be relevant, sometimes we can sacrifice truth and we can compromise and move into a place that we have refashioned who God is. And we've begun to tell a seemingly better story, but it's a different story. And in fact, it's not a good story at all because it is contrary to what the scriptures tell us and therefore will lead to a huge surprise for millions. You and I have an opportunity to determine eternal destiny and it begins today and it can be determined today. So let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you. um, And Lord, it's difficult to talk through uh, some of these things. It's difficult to uh, consider the, the irreversible realities that are to come after death. And Father, for us that are young, for us that are so far from death, seemingly in our heads, so far from the urgency of that day, uh, we think we're invincible. We think we're young. We think we'll live forever. We think we can do anything. Father, Lord, I pray for some of us that you would come in and you would press in near and dear to our heart and, and press upon us the, uh, the urgency of today, uh, that you press in upon us the, the necessity to wrap ourselves around Jesus Christ uh, for all security and all destiny. Father, I pray for some of us today, if we don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would move in us today, that your spirit would be quickening our hearts, um, that you would be illuminating our eyes, Lord, I pray that maybe today would be the first day that we come to know you. And Father, for the questions that we may have, Lord, I pray that you provide us answers, Lord, that even for the questions that have answers that we don't like, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to see that your son is enough. Uh, We may not always like the answers and we may not always like the story, but I pray that we'd find in your son, Jesus Christ, that he is enough. And that with him we can have a sufficiency and a, and a cause and a peace despite what else would come, despite what our culture and our world would say. And for those of us that know you, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a sense in which we would trust you uh, even when the answers are hard, um, that we would trust you even when uh, the answers are offensive. Um, Father, I pray that you'd allow us to know how to be winsome, to know how to be relevant, to be gracious to those that differ, to be kind and sensitive to those that would question us, and to provide an answer and apology that's not apologetic, uh, but that it's an explanation of our hope, an explanation of what your son Jesus Christ has done and that we would have an answer in our day and in our worlds and our campuses and our organizations in a way that wouldn't pull away from truth, but in a way that would be loving to those that were answered. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. You guys, thanks for being here this morning. Uh, we'd love to have you guys at CNJs. If you guys have some questions you want to talk a little bit more, I would love to grab you and talk with you. So you guys feel free to come up. But otherwise, we'll see you guys at CNJs, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.